Our first scripture reading is in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 25. In that blue Bible, it's page 816. After Jesus has had some confrontation with the religious elites and some of their thinking and also the fickleness of crowds. Never forget that crowds are fickle. Wow, John must be possessed by a demon because he ate locusts and didn't eat anything else. Jesus must be a wine-bibber because he hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. After all of that, then Jesus comes to this point, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And now turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 13. 2 Chronicles 13 is... We continue our series through First and Second Chronicles, Reclaim, Revive, Reform, Return. It's on page 367 in that blue Bible. So Roboam is gone, he's died, and now his son takes up as king for a very, very short reign of three years. Abijah. Abi means my father. Yah is short for Yahweh. So my father is Yahweh. Abijah. And so in chapter 13, verse 1, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, that was the northern king of the northern faction of the shattered, splintered church, of the shattered, splintered kingdom. He was the leader up there, Jeroboam was. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gabeah. Now there was war between Abijah and Joram, uh, Jeroboam, Abijah went out to battle having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Abijah stood up on Mount Zimaraim, that is in the hill country of Ephraim, and he said, Hear me, O Jeroboam and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord, that Yahweh, God of Israel, gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. And he carried, and, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him, gathered around Rehoboam, and defined, defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of Yahweh, of the Lord, in the hand of the sons of David, because you are a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for your gods. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, of of Yahweh, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the peoples of other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are no gods. But as for us... The Lord, Yahweh, is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord, to Yahweh, who are sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. 
They offer to Yahweh, to the Lord, every morning and every evening, burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices, set out the showbread on the table of pure gold, and care for the golden lampstand, that its lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord, of Yahweh our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call, the battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come up behind them, uh, to come up on them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front of and behind them. And they cried out to the Lord, to Yahweh. And the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah and God gave them into their hands. Abijah and his people struck them with great force so there fell Of Israel, 500,000 chosen men fell slain. Of Israel, 500,000 chosen men. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on Yahweh, on the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him. Bethel with its villages, and Jeshanah with its villages, and Ephron with its villages, and Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abijah, and Yahweh struck him down, and he died, and Abijah grew, grew mighty. And he took 14 wives, and had 22 sons and 16 daughters. And the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings, are written in the story of the prophet Edo. What I read to you from the Gospel according to Matthew and from Second Chronicles 13. It is the instructive and guiding. It is the inspired and inspiring word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, as we are called by your name, and you promise to hear, to forgive, and to heal, may we grow in humility, pray without ceasing, and rely on you ever and always. Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting and don't know, the sermon notes are on the back of a worship guide. Uh, there are some cross-references under one of the points. There's actually a quotation you'll want to look at at the end. And then finally, there's some questions. Well, my friends, there's an article out there that is surfing on the internet these days. It's this one right here. It's called Departure, Departure, Why I Left the Church. It's an autobiographical tale by a Presbyterian minister, but let me say this in its context. He's a Presbyterian minister in a Presbyterian denomination that allows ministers to deny miracles, especially or even the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus. And that's where his context is. But in that article, he tells of his frustrations and why he has stepped down back at the end of August, why he stepped down from being the pastor. And the article is written to garner your sympathies. And there are some things to acknowledge as you read through the article. Yet, beyond the fact that it's only one side of the story, it's only the author's side of the story, as you read the article, you realize there is this underlying sense of entitlement. Well, I expected better. I should have gotten better because, well, I deserved better, therefore I quit. 
or something like that. The author seems to be taking his own importance too importantly, expecting that since he had all of these fine qualities and skills, he should have received happier outcomes. Something seems a bit off in his story. Maybe more details will surface that will change my analysis of his, of his article or maybe confirm his complaints. But for now, the article itself appears to be going in the opposite direction of where 2 Chronicles 13 wants us to go. So let's work our way through 2 Chronicles 13. And the very first point is, how can it be? And, and it's really just dealing with how did we get to this point of chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, especially two specific items in it. There are two subjects in verses 1 and 2 that could appear on the surface as contradictory. It's Abijah's mother, for example. I mean, just as a simple thing, over in chapter eleven twenty, she is called Maacah, M-A-A-C-A-H, Maacah. Here she's called Micaiah, right? Well, if you understand the fluidity of spelling, it's only been in the last 150 years that we've standardized spelling in the U.S., right? Or as another funny example, the Philiber family name has about 47 different renditions. Philiber, Philbert, Philpar, Philbert, I mean, you know. When there's no standardized spelling, it's very fluid. So that's not really a problem. But it's the fact that Maacah is the daughter, it says here in chapter 13, verse 2. She's the daughter of Uriel of Gabeah. But you go back to chapter 11, verse 20, it says she's the daughter of Absalom. Well, which is she? Well, here you run across a normal situation in Hebrew biblical lineage. Very often, as you're getting uh, referring to lineage or history, uh, yeah, ancestry, you often skip generations to get to sometimes the fountainhead. So like Abijah later is going to call himself one of the sons of David. Well, the sons of David are all dead. The literal sons of David are dead by this point. Abijah is actually a grandson. How could he call himself a son of David? Because he's part of that lineage. Do you get it? So that's what's going on here. So you need to remember that when you're reading biblical genealogies and lineage, that there are often gaps and skips in there, which is very normal. Okay? And so that's what's going on here. She is probably the immediate daughter of Uriel of Gabeah and the granddaughter of David's son Absalom. That's probably how that works. But secondly, there's a darker backstory. As you're reading about Abijah here in 2 Chronicles 13, you might be thinking, wow, he was a great guy. And then you go over to 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, and you go, oh wait, 1 Kings says he was a really bad guy. Yeah, he did just like his father. He was half-hearted. In fact, this is what it says in 1 Kings 15. He walked in all the sins that his father Robum did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh as God as the heart of David his father. And so Abijah was a half-hearted follower. So there's really not a contradiction between these two stories. Okay, that's God's analysis of Abijah over in 1 Kings 15, and some of it begins to kind of surface here in 2 Chronicles 13. Abijah half-heartedly followed the Lord, just like Rehoboam, his daddy, did. But this is one of those episodes in his very, very short reign. I mean, there's nothing else mentioned. You go to 1 Kings 15, there's like nothing he ever did is ever remembered. In the 2 Chronicles 13, there's only this one event. 
But here's, here's one of those episodes in this very short reign where he seems to have sort of kind of followed the Lord. One last topic before we move out of this point. The historian who is writing Second Chronicles is taking God's prescription from chapter 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land, heal the kingdom. He's taking God's prescription in chapter 7, verse 14, and he is giving you examples of various traits in God's prescription. So in chapter 12, the main trait that he brought up four times was humility. They humbled themselves before the Lord and said, Yahweh is righteous in all that has befallen us. Well, when you get here to chapter 13, it's the same thing. He is emphasizing the traits of humility, but also prayer. That's where this chapter is going, and that's what the historian is doing. 2 Chronicles 7.14 will help you to understand all the rest of 2 Chronicles. What will help you to understand all the rest of 2 Chronicles? Yes, amen. All right, catechism class is over for the day. Good, beautiful. And so then, here's what came to be. It's verses 3 through 4. There's a battle, okay? So the church is split. You know about that from chapter 10, 11, and 12. The kingdom is shattered. It is fractured. And so part of it, a large majority went up north with Jeroboam. And then there's a southern region, a smaller group that has stayed with the descendants of David. And so there's this conflict. As happens in church splits, and factions, and denominationalism. There's this conflict. Doesn't tell us what it was. Doesn't tell us what started it, what instigated it. There's just a conflict. And so here's Abijah with his southern forces, and he's up in the northern realm just a little bit, up in Ephraim. And there's this battle scene brewing. It's about to happen. And what you immediately notice when you get to verse 3 and 4 is that it's 2 to 1 in Jeroboam's favor. Right? The southern tribes, uh, the, uh, Abijah only has 400,000. The northern has 800,000. And I love the way it's characterized. It kind of gives you an extra sense. If you look at verse 3, Abijah had 400 chosen men, but Jeroboam had 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Even the language tells you that this is a bad situation that Abijah is outmatched, Abijah is outmanned, Abijah is outgunned, and as you'll see in verse 13, when we get there, he'll be outmaneuvered. The point is, it's an impossible situation. That's what came to be, this impossible situation. And then in the midst of it all, Abijah stands up on this small little mountain on the edge of the battlefield, and he makes this really long speech. But in his speech... He shows how he gets what God has established in his word and in his promises, even though he's only half-heartedly into it. Like his father Robam, as I said last week, like his father Robam, he believes God's word where it serves his interests. He believes God's word insofar as it serves his interests. And yet he is correct. As he describes who can be, here's the third point, who can be king. So that's verses 5, the first part of verse 8. Who can be 
who can be king. Abijah is correct in much of his description. The kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of the Lord, is to be in the hands of the sons of David. Why is that? Because that's what God promised. Back in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, when David was alive and he, he decided he wanted to build God's house, he says to the prophet, he says, I want to build God a house. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. And then the Lord says to the prophet, no, go back and tell him that it's not okay. You're not going to build my house, but David, I'm going to build your house. I'm going to build your dynasty. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to set one of your sons on the throne. He'll be my son. I'll be his father. And you will never fail to have one of your sons upon the throne. That was God's promise. So Abijah gets it. The kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of the Lord, is to be in the hands of the sons of David. And that is rehearsed all the way through the Old Testament. It is recounted in the Psalms, for example. Psalm 89, Psalm 132. Make it crystal clear and loud. It's all through the prophets. And my friends, that important statement is part and parcel of the gospel. Okay, I'm going to say it again. That is part and parcel of the gospel that a descendant of David has become king. When Paul begins Romans, Romans 1, verses 1 through 4, he says, look, I've been set apart by God for the gospel of God that is declared by the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. And that gospel is this, that Jesus is a descendant of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's what Paul says in some of his final words in 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 8, when he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. He cannot be the Savior and Lord of the world if he is not the descendant of David and Messiah of Israel. Does that make sense? You may wonder why, but it's because basically it's what God promised. And so God is reliable and faithful to his word. And so it's part and parcel with the, with the gospel. And so Abijah hears it, he believes it, he believes what God says insofar as it serves his interests. You start to notice when you get to verse 6 and 7, there's things that God has said that he has, he has set aside and he's ignoring here. He starts to recount how the kingdom broke up in verse 6 and 7. And you'll notice that he shifts the blame... And he pulls out the victim card and slaps it on the table. It's here as he describes this. Listen to how he puts it. In verse 6, Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. And then there were certain worthless rapscallions and scoundrels around my dad, Roboam, and they defied Roboam, the son of Solomon, when Roboam was young and irresolute, and he could not withstand that you should feel sorry for him. Do you hear him? He's shifting the blame, and he slaps out the victim card. What's intriguing is when you go back to read what God had said and God had done back in chapter 10, you realize Abijah gets it wrong on purpose. You compare how his daddy refused the counsel of the older men. Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you advise that I should tell these people? He, re he refuses that counsel and he immediately goes to his contemporaries. What do you say that we should say to this people? 
He's all on board with that, and their whole stick your pinky in their face and tell them you're bigger, badder, meaner, and more ornery than your daddy talk resonates with him, which is exactly what he does, and he goes on and pursues that. He doesn't mention that part. It's Jeroboam's fault. He also doesn't mention the fact that God's judgment is what brought the division in the kingdom. Solomon had sinned, his grandpa had sinned at the end of his life, and it was pretty heinous. And God told his grandfather, I'm going to break up the kingdom because of your actions. He doesn't recount the fact that his own dad, Roboam, pursued the same kind of policies. And that this act of judgment was God's doing because of their sins. He doesn't have anything to say about that. And yet if you go back to chapter 10, all of this was according to the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeroboam, etc., What I'm trying to get across is that Abijah conveniently leaves out God's word that makes him uncomfortable and puts him in a bad light. He only believes God's word where it is convenient or where it is instrumental for him. And that's it. He's a selective believer, if you want to call it that. He completely excludes all of those other things He embraces God's word only as far as it serves his interests. And then he shifts the blame. It's somebody else's fault. And he pulls out the victim card. My daddy and I are just victims. Woe, woe are we. Dear friends, beware of church leaders. And beware of politicians who walk down the same path, selectively hearing only what they want to hear and standing on only that and conveniently forgetting everything else and then shifting the blame and then pulling out the victim card. And watch out for church factions that capitalize on some favorite Bible passages to show how much more righteous they are than all the rest of those people. And so Abijah, as far as it serves his interests, gets right who can be king. And he also gets right where God's people are to be worshiping. It's the rest of verse 8 through verse 12, where to be worshiping. Now notice that Abijah is accurate in his characterization of Jeroboam's out and out rewriting of the faith. If you know the story from 1 Kings 12, you realize that what Jeroboam did is he rewrote God's faith, right? So he set up alternative worship places, he set up alternative clergy, he set up alternative festivals, and then he went back to old-time religion, Exodus 32. And he set up golden calves, and he said, this is Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, worship here. And so Jeroboam rewrote all of the faith in that way. And so Abijah is correct about that. He had done all those things when God had actually established the right way, his way, to enter into his presence to draw near at the temple, to draw near to him in his prescribed terms with this priesthood and through these means at this place. What's interesting to me is that as Abijah is describing this, it appears that his father, His father seems to have maintained those faithful expressions outwardly. 
But remember, his heart was not in it. Just go back and read chapter 12 and verse 14. Roboam did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek Yahweh. So he maintained all the external expressions outwardly, but his heart was not in it, and Abijah seems to be following suit. So this is what lies behind Abijah's words in verse 10. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. Or verse, when you get down to the end of verse 11, for we keep the charge of the Lord, of Yahweh our God, but you have forsaken him. I think that's very, very interesting. Rehoboam looks like a believer because he keeps all the external, outward stuff going, all the liturgical things. And Abijah looks like a believer on the outside because he keeps all of that going. And neither one of them is their heart in it. And it makes you stop and ponder and ask yourself, Am I holding only to the outward, faithful expressions of the faith, yet only doing it half-heartedly or with no heart at all? And so Abijah is correct that Jeroboam's open rebellion, in verse, as, it's, as he puts it in verse 12, that Jeroboam's open rebellion is a fight against Yahweh, and he will not succeed. It's the last part of verse 12. O sons of Israel, do not fight against Yahweh, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. And you hear that language, you cannot succeed. And your mind starts thinking about a verse that you've heard me say repeatedly because it's one of the theme verses of First and Second Chronicles. It's chapter 2020, 2020, right? Get your goggles on, your glasses on, 2020. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe as prophets and you will succeed. Here's the polar opposite. Jeroboam is not believing in the Lord and he's not believing in God's prophets so he will not be established and he cannot succeed. That's what Abijah is pointing out to him. And so then comes the divine exclamation point to this chapter the way to be. And it starts in verse 13 through verse 20. Verse 13 through verse 20. Outmatched, outmanned, outgunned, and now outmaneuvered. Right? Apparently, Abijah's long sermon, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a funny joke behind this, but Abijah's long sermon gave plenty of time for Jerobin to set up an ambush. So, preacher, how much longer? Anyways. And now this ambush is set up, so now he's outmaneuvered. They're all around him, and they are double than him, and they're a greater number and a greater power, greater force. In so many ways, he's outmatched, outmanned, outgunned, outmaneuvered. And what do the people do? They pray. They cry out to the Lord. Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. They pray. They cry out to the Lord. And in verse 18, they relied on the Lord. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, rely upon the Lord. That's exactly what they do. God's prescription for such a time as this is being displayed here. And I want you to notice that what God did, he did exactly what he promised he would do in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal the land. He stands ready to hear, forgive, and heal. To establish this southern realm of his fractured, fragmented kingdom 
and bring success. Notice how often it's repeated. Verse 14, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. Verse 16, God gave them into their hands. God gave the northern tribes into the southern tribes' hands. Verse 18, thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied upon Yahweh, the God of their fathers. And then fast forwarding a few years, it says in verse 13, and Yahweh struck Jeroboam down and he died. And so God stands ready to hear, ready to forgive and ready to heal, to heal the kingdom. But notice here that at this moment, He doesn't heal the whole kingdom because he doesn't reunite the whole divided, fragmented, scattered, shattered church and kingdom under David's reign for various reasons. Mainly because of the backstory from 1 Kings 15, verse 3. Because Abijah's heart is not in it. He is still pursuing a utilitarian faithfulness. And so the kingdom is not fully restored because that backstory is still there. And yet, he does grant them some deliverance. Stealing a phrase from chapter 12, verse 7. He does grant some deliverance. He brings these up and strengthens their power and gives them victory. And so the emphasis in this chapter is humility and prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. The emphasis in this chapter is on humility and prayer. Humility in that they relied upon the Lord and they pray and prayer in that they cried out to the Lord. And they did all of this in the most impossible of circumstances. Where it was impossible to win. Where it was impossible to walk away victorious. And then verse 21 and 22, Abijah, to use that stage phrase phrase again, Abijah fades to black. It's all an inspiring episode and moment, and yet the Lord's evaluation of Abijah in 1 Kings 15, 3 still stands. In many ways, what you're reading is you are reading a flash-in-the-pan faithfulness. You're reading a moment of temporary loyalty And yet God still responds to it, stands ready to hear, forgive, and heal. 2 Chronicles Chronicles 13 preaches to us the good news of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Just like chapter 12, Rehoboam and Judah humbled themselves saying, Yahweh is righteous and the Lord stood ready to hear forgive and heal. So here Abijah and Judah prayed and they relied upon the Lord and the God who searches the heart and knows all plans and thoughts stands ready to hear to forgive and heal. Now their reliance may not be as pure, as thorough as you would like and yet God is as pure and thorough as you can imagine or more. 2 Chronicles 13 is actually about grace and grace alone. They got what they didn't deserve. And so, my friends, 
clearly what God wants and what the inspired historian who is writing this wants is for God's beleaguered people who are returning from exile in the middle 300s B.C. to come to see their impossible circumstance. They've spent generations under pagan rule where they have been defamed, they've been disenfranchised or demoralized. They're just, it's a horrible situation, and now they're coming back to the land, and what do they see? They see the land defamed, demoralized, disenfranchised. They need to come to see their impossible circumstance. So he wants them to see their impossible circumstance and to do what they're supposed to do, to do what these people did here, to run, to run to God who stands ready to hear and to forgive and to heal. God's precious prescription is even for such times as these. And God's beleaguered people in the 21st century are being beckoned to do the same. Being called by his name, we are to humble ourselves and pray. Instead of relying on our power, instead of relying on our privilege, instead of relying on our prestige, or instead of being dismayed at our lack of power, privilege, and prestige, we come to rely upon the liberating, loyal, life-giving God. And we cry out to him. We pour out our concerns and consternations to him. We pour out our situations and circumstances to him. Some of you have told me how maybe discouraged you are right now with things nationally or internationally and maybe within your own family. That's what I'm talking about. Bringing those to his feet and saying, you know it all, you knew it before it even happened. But I am, I am churning on the inside, worried and fearful, but I trust you. And coming and praying and bringing all of these to him. It's a scene, as I said, all about God's grace. I think Christopher Hutchinson puts it well in his great book, I hope everybody reads, Rediscovering Humility. And this is the quotation in your sermon notes at the end. I think he puts it well in a very John Calvinish kind of way. He sounds just like John Calvin here. Quote, All approaches to God and all religions boil down to only one of two possibilities. A religion of merit that feeds pride. Or a religion of grace that demands self-abnegation, humility. If grace is the beginning of humility, God's glory is its end. Humility thus serves the essential bridge in believers' souls between sola gratia, grace alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. As grace humbles believers, they are further able to glory in God alone. That's what this story is driving us to see. It is by grace alone, and grace really has us, it humbles us so that we really can be able to further the glory, glory, to glory in God alone. And finally, my friends, The greater son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, calls us to this very place where we come, we come and we throw it all there at his feet. He calls us to come to the same place. It is at his feet. 
It's where we need to come and lay down our self-importances and entitlements. We must come and lay down our pride and our prejudice. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Worried and going and blowing and toiling and, and whatever else you're doing because you're trying to control the future and control the outcomes. He's talking to you. Trying to rise up in power to dominate and take over. And it's exhausting and you keep getting defeated. He's talking to you. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. He's the God of 2 Chronicles 7.14 who stands ready to hear, to forgive, and to heal. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Everybody know what a yoke is, right? Not that yellow thing in your egg, right? It's what the oxen would wear. Okay, or maybe if you had to go get water from the well, you would put a yoke on your neck and put a bale over here and a bale over here and you'd go fill both of them up with water so you could carry the load better. Notice what Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. To our world around us, his yoke and his burden seems heavy. You mean, you mean I actually have to be humble? That won't make me a CEO or get me voted in as president. Only pride does that. You mean I actually have to rely on God and not my own American know-how and power? What? So it sounds like Jesus' way is a burden. But the reality is, it's a life-giving, liberating way of our loyal God. We sang last week in one of our supplemental hymns, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And so I ask you, have you called on the name of the Lord and been saved? Have you come to him and thrown all of your successes and defeats, all of your powers and setbacks, all of your labors and heavy burdens at his feet? Have you come and taken onto yourself his saving lordship, the lordship of, our, of Jesus Christ, the life-giving, liberty-giving, loyal God in the flesh, and found rest for your souls? Have you done it? Turn to him. Cry out to him. You see the burdens I'm carrying. You see the labor I'm doing. You see how I'm trying to save myself and save my world and save my family and save, 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 save. And it's killing me. And I give up. Take me, Jesus. Let's pray. Pray, O oh Lord, that you would be with us, that we would really get down into our souls, into the marrow of our bones. Your prescription, my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land, heal the kingdom. 
Thank you, Lord, that you are the one that we can rely on. You are the one that we can throw ourselves into your arms, knowing that we're throwing ourselves into the arms of a good father. We come to you, Jesus, and we can lay our burdens down, knowing that you are a good savior and a good Lord. I pray for any here who have never laid their burdens down, that you would bring them to that point even this very day. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.